This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 5. I'm reading verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Middle Street Church. My name is Steve-O, and I know that Chris has prayed, but I'm going to ask if we could just spend another minute. I want to invite you guys to pray for me, and I'd like to pray for you, and I'll close this in just a, a minute. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would plug our hearts into yours, that we might know you and see you today, that we might hear the voice of our Lord Jesus, that we might know the embrace of our Heavenly Father. If it was up to my words, my creativity, my just energy or whatever that I produce, Lord, the the frailty of the preacher cannot bring any hope and comfort. So we ask as desperately as we know how that we might hear you today. I pray that your voice would outvolume anything else that we might hear, that I might hear, that we will rest at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to share with you a conversation that I had with my daughter this very month, eight years ago. It recently came up on a Facebook feed. April 6, 2015. Karis? 
Daddy, Karis, bad dream. Bad dream. No like it. Too scary. Me. Karis, are you afraid of having another bad dream? Karis, yeah, too scary. Me. Do you want me to put your bad dream in my pocket? Karis, with hope and excitement. Yeah. Daddy put Karis' dream in Daddy's pocket? Me. Yup. Here it is. I reach for air, grab bad dream, and put it in my pocket. Karis, is that better? Karis, as her face lights up. Yeah. Karis' dream in Daddy's pocket? All gone? All better. Thank you, Daddy. Hugs. And it used to be that simple. My daughter had a bad dream? No problem. I know just the solution. Put it in my pocket. While my kids were little, I found that my pockets were filled with thunderstorms, bad dreams, and bad people. All I would have to do was put my hand in the air, reach for it, whatever it was, and slide into my pocket, and poof, voila. I create peace and order out of thin air. It was probably the one time in my life where I felt all-powerful. I, me, dad, was able to quiet my child's restless heart. I sometimes wish it was still that simple. But the older we get and the more in touch we get with reality, we understand that our problems in in life cannot simply be stuffed into a pocket. We have real anxiety. Life feels tumultuous. We feel that we can't handle another wave of stuff. Stuff at work. Stuff at home. Financial stuff. Health stuff. We are sure that the next wave could knock us out. We're not sure how to make sense of the why. We're dealing with so much, and if there is a God, we are convinced that we are in His doghouse. Our hearts are restless. We are frantic, flimsy, and frail. In these moments, Paul wants to quiet us, and not with some poof and voila, with some pocket-stuffing magic trick, but with the implications of the gospel of grace. Now, what difference does the gospel make when we're in these situations, when the rubber meets the road on an average Tuesday? I believe that Paul's words in Romans 5 are designed to help us. How does the gospel bring us peace? How does the gospel bring us peace? First, the gospel quiets us when we fail. The gospel quiets us when we fail. Up until this point, Paul has been arguing that mankind, the human race, is bankrupt. Any attempt to justify ourselves, to make us right and whole, and put together is a hopeless cause, is a hopeless endeavor. Because no matter what we do, no matter how we perform, or no matter how long we persevere, it will never be enough to quiet our restless hearts. We don't have it in us. We don't have it in us to be on all the time. 
It was a while ago since I preached here last, and previously I had the opportunity to talk about Paul's message in Romans 4. And throughout the early parts of his letter, Paul rips apart all hope in the human race. All sinned, there is no one righteous, no, not a single one of us. We don't measure up to God's standards, we don't measure up even to our own standards. There's nothing we can do to qualify ourselves in any way. And this gift of righteousness, this gift of justification can only come to us from the outside and it must come by faith. And if this is true, and if the question of whether or not I am enough and have done enough cannot be sufficiently answered by our own performance, then what room is there to boast? What can I myself cling to that distinguishes me in any way or gives me a leg up on anybody else? What room is there for boasting? Paul says none. Absolutely none. And if we have embraced the gospel, if we have embraced that Jesus Christ has come in in real history, in real time, in real flesh, and has done for us that what we cannot do for ourselves, and if we have thrown ourselves with him as our only hope, then Paul tells us that we have peace with God. Objective fact. It's a peace that does not waver depending on my own performance, even if I fail. Verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, even through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Do you know what this means for me in my restless heart? I don't have to be on all the time. I don't have to deliver the best sermon in order to be a somebody. My performance cannot justify me. Christ justifies me. In 2018, I was a pastor and church planning apprentice in Boston. I was organizing a men's retreat, and one of the tasks given to me was to have guys over in preparation for this retreat and to watch the movie Braveheart. Yes. And before the men came over, I had a sort of a panic because my Blu-ray player wasn't working. I couldn't let it go, and I felt compelled to fix it somehow. I later was able to reflect upon my obsession with performance and my fear of failure, and this is what I wrote. Today, I'm still a high-achieving hard worker. That's what you see. What you don't see is that I'm exhausted. I'm always on. I'm always performing. I'm always on and always performing. Everything I do is a performance. This is a performance. I'm always so anxious that I might not do a good job. When I had people come over for the Wellspring Gladiator night, I had a difficult time turning off the on button. I have to make sure everything hits. I have to make sure everything is a success. I set up the sound system, which had been off for over six months. I updated the Blu-ray player to be able to read the Blu-ray. And when the Blu-ray player wouldn't play the Blu-ray, I panicked that I only had a DVD. And having a DVD might reflect poorly upon me. 
I find myself apologizing that we watch Gladiator only on DVD and not on Blu-ray, even when I'm supposed to be one of the guys and just having fun, I'm always performing and always on. I will always have to be the high-achieving hard worker. I need to do everything in my power that everything is the way it's supposed to be. The cost is that I'm tired. I never feel like what I do is good enough. I have a hard time hearing good job and feel satisfied with what I did. I have a difficult time appreciating my accomplishments. I hardly feel as what I did was good enough because I feel it could be better or I could have done better had I put in more effort. This costs me sleep, friendship, leisure. It keeps me from being known in relationships. I'm always second-guessing and replaying in my head how I could have done things better or differently rather than just enjoying the evening relaxing. I have a difficult time believing God is pleased with me and really just enjoys me for me. I'm always performing and always on, and it's just tiring. Evil wants me to be crippled with anxiety and to feel inadequate and hear the words, not good enough. How does the gospel bring us peace in our failures when we don't measure up, when we don't have a Blu-ray player, when we don't get that bonus, when we don't hit our numbers, when we don't get into the school that we wanted to get into, when our kids don't call us back, when we don't contribute enough, when we don't produce enough, when we're just not good enough. The unadulterated gospel of grace reminds us that being good was never up to us. The unadulterated gospel of grace never has anything to do with our own performance. We don't move from a gospel of grace where God does the early heavy lifting to some tandem where we increasingly take on more and more of the load. The gospel of grace does not take the weight that Christ lifted off our shoulders simply to put it back on. Paul reminds us of the grace in which we stand. Verse 6. You see, while we were without strength, at the appointed time, Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. Indeed, hardly will anyone die on behalf of a righteous man, though perhaps on behalf of a good man one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died on our behalf. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, then all the more we will be saved from God's wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by means of his son's death, then all the more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only so, but we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The same Paul who condemned boasting in Romans 2, 3, and 4 now tells us where we put our boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. 
The goal of the Christian life isn't to try harder, to make promises to turn over a new leaf, or to muster all we have to become a better version of ourselves. The Bible stance is that we are by nature in and of ourselves enemies, sinners, ungodly. I mean, that's our contribution to the table. Our acceptability and suitability and justification had never anything to do with our own performance, contributions, or qualifications. Not then, not now. The hope in which Paul boasts in is the unadulterated gospel of grace, not our progress, not our efforts. The good news is that the only thing that we need to qualify to become an object of God's love and to be good enough is to be ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see how liberating this is? Do you see what peace is being offered to us when we fail? If there was never ever anything in us to attract God's love towards us, then there could never be anything in us to detract God's love from us. Our hearts are restless. We are frantic, flimsy, and frail. Paul tells us where we find our hope and peace. Christ is our righteousness. Yesterday, today, and forever. I forget that all the time. And I imagine that you do too. And I want to remind you what I need you to remind me. Not just once, but over and over. And if we're going to become a church characterized by hope and peace, and if we're going to become a church that experiences and offers hope and peace, then we're going to need to become a church that stands in grace. In the words of Martin Luther, we find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace. We stand in grace. We are safe, solid, and secure in his unshakable love. How does the gospel bring us peace? First, the gospel quiets us when we fail. Second, the gospel quiets us when we suffer. The gospel quiets us when we suffer. When we stand in grace, when we embrace our deep need and God's full provision for us in Christ, we are quieted when we suffer. Verse 1, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, even through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We even boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we even boast in suffering. Paul says we boast in the hope of the glory of God and that we boast in suffering. Now that word boast... In, our English, in many English translations, is translated the word rejoice. But it's a very strong and peculiar word choice. It means to boast, to rejoice. But how can Paul use his word boast to describe suffering? Is he crazy? Is he delusional? No. Paul understands suffering. He is not oblivious to pain. He is not saying that the breakup didn't happen and that we just need to get over it. He is not denying the difficulties of having to be away from our families just to put food on the table. He is not minimizing the pain of infertility. 
He is not denying the loss of a loved one. Paul is not a stoic. And Paul is not a masochist either. He's not rejoicing for the pain itself. He's not saying we should rejoice because our families split up. He's not celebrating when we lose our jobs. He's not asking us to be increasingly happy as our health declines. But Paul believes the gospel enables us to boast in the midst of suffering because our suffering is not in vain, is not without reason. It actually produces something. Verse 4, because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I'm not going to pretend to be some Bible or philosophical mastermind and pretend I understand how all this makes perfect sense. I don't know how these verses all tie up together. I can't simplify these verses into an easy process for us to follow. I don't have a nice bow for you here. And if you're going through a lot of pain, then what you need from me is not some pithy platitude, but what you need as a person. And Paul tells us that in the gospel, we are given that very thing. At the end of the day, the only thing that helps us is the hope that comes in the gospel. Somehow the person of the Holy Spirit connects us to the love of God, the love of the Father who gave up His Son for us, the love of the Son who lived every breath and died on the cross and rose from the dead in our place and on our behalf. The love of God is poured out. And that's a strong verb. Not sprinkled, not drizzled, but poured out like the Niagara Falls into our hearts. Now this is not something we ourselves are able to produce, manufacture, or engineer. I don't know if you've ever been to the Niagara Falls. But it's not some easy read the manual, follow the recipe, walk the right steps, and we'll get it. Contrary to requiring us to produce something ourselves, it is God himself who pours out his love. It is God himself who must be the one to produce anything good out of our sufferings. This pouring out of the love of God must be given to us, must be done for us, a person must pour out his love onto us. Now, I've been married to my wife, Kendra, for 15 years. And today we have two beautiful kids, Karis and Judah, twins, who are 11. And if you know my kids, you know how awesome and goofy they are. And I'm so grateful for them. But what you might not know is that Kendra and I struggled for three and a half years to have children. It was years of visiting doctors, taking infertility tests, joining support groups, and we cried a lot. There was a lot of shame, as well as a lot of questions and disappointments. We questioned whether or not God was good, if He was fair, if He cared, if He noticed. We even wondered if God was punishing us. What helped us were the writings of a woman named, named Paige Benton. And at the time of writing, she was still single and wrote about her unfulfilled longings to be married. 
Paige Benton says, I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God would not be less good to me because God cannot be any less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on the monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be any less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. What brought Paige hope was not some Christian platitude, but a person. At the cross, God removed the only barrier that could keep us from him. His justice, his righteous wrath. At the cross, God took my punishment I deserved upon himself, and he relinquished it. The Bible says at the time of Christ's death, the very curtain, that barrier that kept us out of the presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom, and Christ achieved for us access. We have been properly introduced to the king's family. We are always welcome to God's loving embrace. And because Christ took my punishment on the cross, I can be certain that no matter what I am going through, God cannot be punishing me. The suffering I'm going through is productive, not punitive. When we think of God's disposition towards us right now, what's that look like? I want to ask you, is that face scowling? Is the face of God scowling? If we have thrown ourselves with Jesus as our only hope, then the cross tells us that that scowling face is fictional. He is not ticked. He's not upset. He's not disappointed. He's fond of us. He delights in us. He likes me. He really, really likes me. We cannot be any more embraced. We cannot be any more esteemed. We have been fully forgiven. We've been eternally accepted. And if you don't know know that embrace yet, then it can be yours. The only thing that God requires of us is our need, is our bankruptcy, is our ungodliness. For Christ died for the ungodly. That's the good news. Christ died for the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Peace with God has been achieved for us by Christ, and that peace is a reality. But it is only a reality for those of us who are united with Christ. If that's not you, then it can be. The invitation is for all of us. I love that song we sang today. If we tarry till we're better, 
we will never come at all. Where you're sitting right now, you can pray. God, I'm lost, hopeless, destitute without you. I have nothing to offer you but my need. And you say, all that you require of me is to put my faith in Jesus, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I throw myself with Jesus as my only hope. And if you made that prayer right now, where you're sitting, and the Bible says that you have objectively, factually, in reality, peace with God. That reality is yours. No one can take it away from you. This is not a peace that dissipates upon how we feel, how we perform, how we produce, or what we produce. It's a peace that has been achieved for us and on our behalf. Christ is our righteousness yesterday, today, and forever. We stand in grace. We are safe, solid, and secure in His unshakable love. Do you know one of the things that I miss most about being a full-time pastor? I mean, I love the Lord's table, and Lord willing, Chris can uh, hook me up and give me that opportunity. But one of the things I miss most about being a pastor is giving the benediction. And I did get Chris's permission to do that for you today. Uh, and I love it because and I, I love, I'm, I'm increasingly loving more and more the benediction that God instructed Moses and Aaron, to, to instructed the priests to give to the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. He says, now, uh, the reason why I like it is this. It invites us. It's an invitation to reflect upon the face of God. When you imagine the face of God looking at you right now, what's it look like? What does it feel like? Now listen to these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, I want to be the Lord Jesus for you right now and tell you of the effect of the cross on which I died. The cross on which I died, the cross on which I died, is where the undiluted wrath of God was poured out on me. The cross on which I died was to pour out my love on you. I am faithful. I died for you. What sins? You are righteous. You are my beloved. You are my delight. I am yours. You are mine. Everything I have is yours. I love you. We stand in grace. We are safe, solid, and secure in His unshakable love. Would you join me in prayer?
Father, we thank you for giving us your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would nourish us today. Some of us are hurting real bad and in deep pain. Comfort us. Grant us faith. Give us hope. Connect us to your fatherly love and allow us to rest in your care. Show us the face of Jesus and connect us to his heart. And may your love pour out lavishly like the Niagara Falls into our hearts that we cannot help but to fall at your feet. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen.